Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio, this this is a virtual studio these days, and you who are listening create a dialogue we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard. Liz Graves is on maternity leave. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any uh, calls uh, during the program. College of the Atlantic is uh, celebrating its 50th anniversary. In addition to its important mission to students' education leading to a degree in human ecology, it serves as one of the intellectual hubs for the region, including sponsoring the free College of the Atlantic Summer Institutes. The theme of this year's institute is Reimagining Exploration, offered free to the public in the first week of August in collaboration with the National Geographic Society. This afternoon, we're delighted to talk with President Darren Collins of College of Atlantic and two of the Institute speakers. Um, so, so happy to have you with us. Um, Darren is joined by Kim Stanley Robinson, known as Stan. He's the author of The Ministry for the Future, The Mars Trilogy, and many others. And he works with the Sierra Nevada Research Institute. We'll learn more from Stan in, in a moment. And Dr. Nadia Rosenthal is Scientific Director at the Jackson Laboratory. She's also a, a College of Atlantic board member, and I should say, full disclosure, I am as well. Um, I have a wonderful association with the College of the Atlantic, in addition to um, producing and hosting this radio program. Um, let's start with each of you and, and uh, maybe start with uh, Nadia. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, your background as a scientist and, the, and then your connection to the College of the Atlantic. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Ron. It's great to be here. Uh, I am a uh, molecular biologist, um, but um, really, essentially, I'm a genetics junkie. Um, I've spent most of my life uh, looking at the way in which genes affect our lives. And obviously, during this pandemic, um, my work pivoted towards the whole question of viral pandemics and, and COVID-19 and what it is that makes some people so sick and others just walk away from infection been a fascinating ride. It's been a terrifying time, but uh, we've learned a lot, I'd say, about viruses. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the Summer Institute. I'll be interviewing none other than the great Nirav Shah, well known to uh, all of our main radio listeners as uh, our sort of hope and, um, and uh, solace during the two years of COVID when he appeared every day at 2 p.m., and uh, told us what was happening in pandemic world. He's since moved on. He's been bumped upstairs and he's now uh, the deputy director at the uh, CDC down in Atlanta, but he's making a trek back to his beloved Maine to talk with us. And I'm really looking forward to having that conversation. And Nadia, you have a long association with um, the area around Mount Desert Island from one of its um, neighboring islands, and you're connected to the College of Atlantic. Tell us a little bit more about that background as well. Well, when I was two years old, my parents came to this area looking for a, a, a summer off. My father had just gotten out of the Air Force. It was Korean War days, and we were looking for a place to hide uh, before going to Broadway to try to make his fortune 
And uh, they just happened to land on this tiny little island, one of the Cranberry Islands off the coast of Mount Desert Island. And uh, long story short is I'm uh, sitting in a house that uh, basically was something we rented and ended up getting a chance to buy. And so I've been coming here every summer of my life. And eight years ago, I moved here full time to take over the directorship up at the Jackson Laboratory. You, you couldn't make it up. It's been a, a wonderful uh, sort of coincidence. And um, at the same time, or actually a little earlier, I had been uh, contacted by one of your board members and uh, and who asked me if I'd be interested in serving on the COA uh, board, which I was obviously very interested in doing. I've always been a big admirer of the college. And so um, on and off, I've, I've been on the board ever since. Um, I think I've got one more year to go before they have to kick me off. <laughs> well, great. Um, Stan Robinson, uh, you also have a connection to Mount Desert Island. Um, some are here. Um, tell us a little bit about that connection and your work as a, as a writer. Sure. And thanks, Ron, for having me. Uh, and Darren also for inviting me to this um, Institute for the Summer uh, session that we're having. I um, first came to the island in 1982. My, um, I met my wife in California where we live, but sh her grandparents, Helen and Harold Kirk, uh, lived their lives in Bar Harbor and had a camp that we still own out on Long Pond. So in my unwritten, as yet unwritten book, I Married the Island, pretty much puts it in a nutshell. And I'm happy I did. I love it here. We took our kids every summer to the College of the Atlantic's George Durham Museum um, to see the taxidermy, to learn all the wild animals on the island. And we've seen a fair number of them, which I guess is not uncommon, but for California, it's thrilling. And then I've had contact with a couple of um, College of the Atlantic uh, professors through the years, one way or another. And, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, um, doing more now that my wife is retired. We're spending more time here on the island, which is fantastic. Great. And how did you get started as, as, a, as a writer? Did you always write as a, as a young person or did that come later in life? How did, how did you get started? I was always a reader. A very mm. intense and engaged reader. I loved it as much as anything in, in life. And so I did try some writing when I was young, but I could see very well that it was harder than it looked. And so it was really as an undergraduate in college so that I began to uh, practice it as a kind of a daily thing out of intense interest. I began as a poet, but that wasn't really my genre. And when I discovered science fiction, which for me was pretty late in life, maybe 21 or so, uh, that was the light bulb going off over my head. I think it, as a Southern Californian, science fiction is a, a realism. So I took to it and have been doing it ever since. Great, great. Well, let's go to Darren Collins. Uh, Darren, um, you were a student, I believe. You you um, came in the '80s. Um, I remember you as a as a kayaker because I led the outdoor orientation trip around Mount Desert Island. Is that is that right? We we kayaked together. <laughs> that is absolutely right, Ron. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll never forget that week on the water with you, and um, it's really good to be here. And yeah, I came to COA from, from New Jersey. I grew up in a spot called Parsippany, New Jersey, and the first one in my family to go off to college and uh, wound up here in the fall of 1988 and 
graduated in 1992. And those were some of the, the four years there were just, I'll, I'll never forget them. And I was humbled and honored when I had the opportunity to come back in 2011 as the the college's president. And so I'm um, I'm walking into my 13th year as president now. Mm, great. Well, tell us a little bit about, um, again, most listeners to WERU's uh, Talk of the Towns will recognize College Atlantic as a contributor to the area, but say a little bit about its, its history, its mission, and then talk a little bit about um, how did the Summer Institute originate? What's its purpose? So those yeah. two things. As much as I want to do that, like <laughs> I'm standing here with two of my heroes, I'm really would much prefer to hear them talk, but I'll give you, I'll try and be quick. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as you said at the outset, we're, we're about 50 years old. Um, so we're a very new institution and we were created when two friends, uh, two local friends from Bar Harbor came, came together, Jim Gower and Les Brewer and, you know, Les had this vision of helping rebuild community on Mount Desert Island after the devastating fire of 1947. And by the time he and Father Jim bumped into each other uh, out on Cottage Street here, uh, Father Jim uh, was a was a priest, and he said to to Les, "You know what? I've been burying too many boys coming back from Vietnam." Um, Martin Luther King was just assassinated. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was just assassinated. You know, the the world feels like it's unraveling at the seams. I'm all in for helping rebuild community on Mount Desert Island, but we've got to do it globally also. So the College of the Atlantic was was born with those two, two um, mission points, like one very locally focused and one very globally focused. And, um, you know, first crew of students came on in 1972 and uh so now we are you know 50 plus years out and one of the ways we wanted to realize that mission was through the summer institute and so seven years ago we decided to create something in the summer um that was a way to give back culturally and intellectually to all of the people who made coa possible and so we opened up a week-long forum that was totally free and open to the public uh, that lasted over the course of five days and that would have a theme. Um, and this theme switches from year to year. And uh, if you'll give me just a little bit more rope here, there are five things that we really wanna try to accomplish with this, this Summer Institute. First, it's about conversation among people with great range. And so we've got two of them here today. It's all about conversation, you know, that's that, that's really key. We want people to get to know Mount Desert Island. Uh, so we, we, we have a morning session and an evening session, but we want, we leave the, the middle of the day open and we try and help get people out onto MDI. Um, we bring people that are household names, um, but also people who should be household names. We encourage disagreement because disagreement, especially in conversation, can really fuel some some interesting things. Um, and then it's about edification, but it's also about entertainment. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We love to have a lot of fun. And so that's what the Summer Institute has been about for the past seven years. 
And this year and last year, um, you're associated with um, the National Geographic Society. Um, that must bring a special um, kind of connection to that wider world that you're talking about. It, it, it does. Um, Nat Geo is, you know, we've, we've all grown up with those huge stack of yellow magazines somewhere in our, in our house. And to see that um, yellow uh, rectangle associated with the College of the Atlantic is, is, a great, is a great thing. And this year we're looking at exploration. And like you said, the, the title is re, how do we reimagine exploration? And I think the reason we had that word reimagine there is because there's some real difficulty with the word exploration, right? That is associated with kind of tall mast ships and pith helmeted wearing people and having very, very negative impact on, on the planet. And so uh, an exploration in the 21st century, uh, we don't wanna lose sight about where exploration went wrong in the past, but we wanna take it in, an, in, a, new, in a new direction. And so uh, we're imagining this word exploration and curiosity and discovery as very, very broad um, and really trying to point it at global health and understanding and community and I'm really excited about it. It's going to be such an amazing week this week. And just um, so listeners will will uh, get their calendars out and look, when are the dates and how do people um, learn more yeah. about it? Just we'll do, we'll do that at the end at the end of the program as well. But just remind people when it is. Absolutely. So it starts Monday, July 31st, and it goes through Friday, August 4th. Uh, there's the first session is Monday evening, and then Tuesday through Friday there's a morning session and an evening session. And you can come to campus. It's held in a big tent on the North Lawn and everyone's welcome. Or you can participate remotely, but the only thing you have to do is register. And you do that remotely. And you can, if you Google COA Summer Institute, that's probably the easiest way to do it. And you, it's a very quick process. Well, great. I'll just remind listeners, they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We are talking about uh, reimagining exploration, the College of Atlantic's Summer Institute happening July 31st through August 4th. Um, you've just heard from President Darren Collins of the College of Atlantic. Also, our guests are Nadia Rosenthal, Scientific Director at the Jackson Laboratory, and Kim Stanley Robinson, author of The Ministry for the Future and other wonderful science fiction uh, books. Uh, Stan, let's talk with you. You've got a, a session during the uh, Institute called Space, Our Last Great Commons, and that'll include uh, Marie Baja, who was an astrodynamicist um, and with National Geographic Explorers and the chief scientist at, at Privateer. But let's start with this notion of space as the, as the, as the place where you kind of, you do a lot of your practice as a writer, um, taking us to space and imagining what space is like, and also um, this concept of the commons. What, remind us what the commons are and how space space is, is, a, is a platform for thinking about this. Well, that's an interesting take on it, Ron. The, the commons is, uh, comes from a pre-capitalist societies, the idea that the landscape is not a private property owned by individuals, but is shared by everybody as a resource. For a while there, there was a myth of the tragedy of the commons, that if there was a commons, then individuals would overexploit it to the point where it was destroyed for everyone. 
But now there's um, been a revision of that view of the commons that sees it as um, stable, long-lasting. The, the main lobster fishery is a kind of uh, working commons. And so it wasn't an unregulated space ever. It was a set of norms and practices, occasionally even laws, that um, people... Uh, through common sense, trial and error science, uh, studied what they could do to take out of a commons and keep it sustainable for the generations to come. So it's a good term, I think. Um, and I think space in our current climate emergency is somewhat irrelevant to history at this moment, but not entirely. And it does serve as an example of of a um, territory that can't be owned by nation states. So it may be worth thinking about it from that angle, along with all the others. Mm. We used to think of the poles as um, kind of space that couldn't be owned, but that's been in, in, in contrast. And at least one of your, your novels really digs into um, what is, what, what are the poles? Um, are they commons or are they owned? Well, it's good. That's a good analogy uh, for sure, because Antarctica is indeed not owned by any nation state and the nations got together to agree to make it a commons. And the Antarctic Treaty uh, signed in 1959 by 13 nations, but signed on now by almost every nation in the UN, um, it establishes a, uh, it as a, a continent for science. And then that Antarctic Treaty was the basis for the Outer Space Treaty, signed in 1967, and on the same basis that space was to be regarded as a as an area for scientific um, discovery and not for private profit. The Outer Space Treaty is under um, severe interrogation right now because it was never signed by many nations, including the United States. It was more notional than not. Um, but still, these questions do come into play, and there's a lot of analogies that I've pursued my whole career, as you, as you pointed out, between Antarctica and space. Mm -hmm. And um, so you're going to be in conversation with Maria Baja, astrodynamicist. Could you define that term? <laughs> because I'm sure our, <laughs> listener, our listeners well, could not. <laughs> well, um, I would say that um, both stars and the universe at large are very dynamic. And so astro, uh, what is that? The stars and dynamicist is studying the changes in the stars. Well, they blow up, they turn into black holes. Uh, why? What does it take? And now we have dark matter and dark energy. The universe is pulsating, changing in ways that we can't see. One cosmologist said to me that dark matter, dark energy, it's not dark, it's invisible to us. And so the name is a little deceptive. It's not like it's black soot in space. It's that we can't see mass that is causing even the galaxies to come together. Um, it's estimated that 90% of the mass of the universe is invisible to us, and we call it dark matter, but we don't know what it is. So an astrodynamicist might be studying that. I have to admit, I, I don't yet know what the specifics of my interlocutors' uh, pursuits are, but I hope to learn before we talk to each other. Oh, great. Any other thoughts about what that conversation will be like? What What are you most interested in? What What questions might you ask? I am now uh, under the... Um, um, the eyes of the science fiction community under the gun, I was going to say, because I've been saying, and especially in my novel Aurora, that humanity is not going to the stars. 
the stars are too far away, that this was a dream of the ancient Greeks or of 19th century space cadets and um, humanity is destined for the stars. This is a kind of a truism for a certain community of humans. It's almost a replacement for religion or it is a religion. I say not actually possible. And the solar system is our one and only space exploration space, except for indirectly. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that um, it, it, in the whole session at the College of the Atlantic, exploration doesn't need to be humans going places, especially in space. It can be indirect. Uh, or I presume in the microscopic realm, the very few humans are going to, you know, do like uh, in the Asimov story and shrink themselves down to the size of an atom. We, we explore the world now indirectly, but it's still exploration. And so for space, that's very definitely the case. Um, well, Nadia, let's um, go to you. Um, you've got a session coming up um, at the Institute called Viruses, the Boundaries Between Humans and Non-Humans, as you said, with uh, Nirav Shah, uh, former director of the Maine Centers for Disease Control. Uh, could you start with just reminding listeners uh, and us on the panel, what's a virus? <laughs> what's, yeah. what, what, what is so intriguing about this? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to having this conversation uh, with you and also with Nirav. Um, obviously, uh, this new era of post-pandemic sort of wariness has made uh, us all ask more interesting questions about what viruses are. It's a new exploration phase for viruses in general, um, and also of the species boundaries that viruses do or do not respect. So just very, very fundamentally, viruses are uh, microscopic, infectious microbes. Uh, they're very simple in concept, but complicated in their action. They have a small segment of nucleic acid. That's just a fancy word for DNA or RNA, which is our genetic material. And it's surrounded by a protein coat. And that's the whole enchilada. That's a virus. It doesn't have any of the normal cellular structure that a bacteria has or we have, and it can't replicate by itself. So for its life cycle, it has to infect cells and use the component of those cells, which are its host, to essentially make copies of itself. And what happens when it does that, it is often kills the host cell in the process, sort of ruptures it, bursts out, something like alien, causing damage <laughs> to the host organism. And that's how viruses infect you and make you sick. And they're obviously, everyone's very familiar with uh, viruses now, but COVID-19 is only one. I mean, there's AIDS, there's measles, smallpox, polio, but very uh, nasty uh, little critters. Um, and the, the interesting part that perhaps isn't well understood is that viruses don't just uh, attack uh, animals that we can imagine, they have a much greater role in the world of bacteria. So there are many more bacteria infecting viruses than there are man infecting viruses. So we, you know, we're beginning to get a sense of how we are essentially a conglomerate of all sorts of organisms. We contain microbes on our skin, inside our guts, in all of our cavities. And those very uh, bacteria are themselves hosts for viruses. So the continuum between the human and the non-human is happening right now as we digest our breakfast. Yeah. And I think it's very important to remember that this isn't just 
has question of whether I have COVID and therefore I'm, I've got a virus or I am now virus free. We're never free of these microbes and we can't actually afford to be free. Mm. And you, what you're, what you're um, describing is an ecosystem within an ecosystem within an ecosystem. And um, we think of ourselves as, as, as uh, somehow um, operating independently of, of these things as humans. And yet <laughs> we're not. We are totally in, engaged um, with, these, with these other ecosystems. Uh, are there other things that, that uh, intrigue you about viruses that cause you to study them? What, uh, what's yeah. on the top of your mind? Well, I started actually my scientific life as a virologist. Um, and I was, I was, first of all, fascinated by what is, what, what is life? If a virus isn't alive, when does it when when does life start and a virus end? Um, and indeed, there was a uh, a period for the last hundred years where the scientific community has sort of repeatedly changed its collective mind about what viruses are. So it's it's kind of still an open question. And indeed, the word virus derives from the Latin word for poison. And so back then we saw these as life forms, and then we that were poisonous to us, and then we saw them as biological chemicals. And today it's a gray area. They can't replicate on their own, but they do so in all of our truly living cells. And they affect the behavior of their hosts in a very profound way. And um, the way they shift and change to adapt new conditions is amazing. I mean, we watched over the course of two years as the original Wuhan strain of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 just morphed. And every two months there would be a new form, a variant of concern that would then become a variant that was actually infecting people and making them sick. And uh, we were sort of watching evolution working its way right through this uh, transition in a very short period of time. We think of evolution as taking millions of years. These viruses do it in months. Mm. I assume that because you're talking uh, with the former director of Maine Centers for Disease Control, um, you'll be thinking um, kind of out loud with with him about how do we respond um, to viruses and and what we learned from um, the COVID um, virus and what we need to prepare for um, as we think about the future. That's exactly what uh, we're going to be talking about. Um, And I'm very excited because uh, he's planning to give us a real uh, insider's view of what's going on in the Center for Disease Control and what people are doing to try to prepare for the next pandemic. It's a bit like, you know, following a comet around because, of course, these viruses are moving physically and in an evolutionary sense very rapidly. And indeed, there are a couple of things that I'd really like to touch on here because I doubt we'll have a chance to with uh, Nirav, and that is that recent research is beginning to reveal that viruses can actually transfer genes to organisms that they aren't known to infect. So they can actually jump domains or super kingdoms. And pretty soon you find that a virus and cellular organisms share a large group of genes that help cells to function. So in addition to infecting and killing these cells, they can also insert their genes into cells' DNA. And it may be that they interact in non-harmful ways to exchange genes between distantly related organisms, which is one of the you know marvels of evolution is how our genes move around in, in our own species, but actually across species as well. And indeed, in, in the from the virology sort of world, 
uh, view, viruses are a, an incredible engine of change for humans. They, they define our immune system. They force us to evolve. And they give and take genes in ways that actually have ended up helping us. So our genomes are littered with bits and pieces of viral DNA that have been co-opted to do things that we need them to do. So mm. it, it goes both ways. And I think that's the part that from an academic's point of view makes them so interesting, but it also makes them very difficult to follow around and to develop viruses and, uh, sorry, vaccines and antivirals. So we're gonna hear a little bit about exactly how the CDC is planning to do this and exactly how um, Nirav Shah's involvement there is so important. I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. You've just heard from Dr. Nadia Rosenthal, who is the scientific director at the Jackson Lab. She'll be um, interviewing uh, Dr. Nurav Shah, former director of the Maine Centers for Disease Control um, at the Summer Institute of College of the Atlantic happening um, in uh, the, the last last day of, of July and the first week of August um, at College of Atlantic. Um, we're joined also by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, science fiction writer. He'll be uh, speaking uh, with Mariba Ja, an astrodynamicist at the National Geographic Explorers and Chief Scientist at the Private at Privateer, and Dr. Darren Collins, who's president of the College of the Atlantic. Darren, you've heard um, uh, these two kind of uh, snapshots of what uh, kind of a preview. Are there some other um, uh, sessions that you're particularly excited um, about uh, that are, will be happening during the institute? All of them, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to distinguish. The amazing thing is not just how they sit individually, but what happens when you bring two of the presenters or four of the presenters together. And uh, kind of funny story, uh, one of the people joining us over the week is the British sculptor Andy Goldsworthy. Um, and Andy is a remarkable British artist who's doing a an installation on the College of the Atlantic campus, and he's also going to be talking to us about kind of exploring the human cultural divide through art. And as we were curating this, this session, and I was trying to convince Stan that he should stay a few extra days to, to come, he was like, wait a minute, Andy Goldsworthy is going to be there? <laughs> like, yeah, I could probably make the, that happen. And then similarly, when I was Nadia and I were courting Nirav Shah, who is, let's say, a very busy person these days. He was like, wait a minute, Kim Stanley Robinson is going to be there? Yeah, I can definitely make that work. So, gosh, each each session is really wonderful. But um, again, leaning into this idea of conversation and openness, uh, it's also quite amazing what happens after the sessions and we all gather out on the lawn and are having cocktails and all these people are uh, meandering and bumping into each other. And so a lot of the magic happens uh, both before and after the sessions themselves. But um, yeah, I, I'd say I'm, I'm excited about, about everyone, um, but more the, the whole together. Mm -hmm. Nadia, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention that when I was uh, discussing uh, the upcoming program with uh, Nirav Shah, he made a very pointed comment that he is incredibly busy, but that he was so drawn to the aspect of the public nature of this event, the fact that the general public 
were invited and encouraged to join, that that was what, you know, aside from Stan, that was what really attracted him to this, uh, to this institute. And I just think we all really appreciate that aspect of it, Darren. Yeah. Go ahead, Stan. Yeah, I am. Uh, I want to follow up on what Darren said. I am thrilled to be meeting Andy Goldsworthy. He is, um, um, he's transformed the world in his introduction to the general public of landscape art. He uses natural materials out in the world and plays with them to make something beautiful. Sometimes it lasts forever if it's a stone wall. Other times it lasts only an hour if it's a line of leaves on the ground or an ice sculpture that melts. And what he he teaches you, and also he's a tremendous photographer. So a lot of his ephemeral art, he took photos of, and they're in beautiful books you can get anywhere. I presume at Sherman's. Um, He teaches you that you too can make beautiful art in the way that we all do playing around, like down at Hunter's uh, Beach, stacking the pebble stones into stacks. You see this all over this coastline. It's a good idea. And you can pursue that into other natural materials and and realize that it's a, a joy to make ephemeral art out of the natural world. So in my novel, 2312, set 300 years in the future, um, people just call this kind of art Goldsworthy's. And I think that he's a, a world artist of um, real significance. And it's a it's it's a very exciting to hear that College of the Atlantic is going to have a Goldsworthy crossing campus after this summer is done. So that too will be part of the thrill. Mm. So um, Goldsworthy and I think each of you are, are are asking us through this theme of reimagining exploration that we all are observers of the world that we live in, and we're all um, interlocutors, or we're all questioners. That's, that's um, the exploration is us asking questions. Why is this so? How did this come to be? What might it be like in the future? Um, so this, this theme is, is very exciting. And I suppose, um, Stan and Nadia, from each of your perspectives, um, that's what you're, you're encouraging your, either your fellow scientists or your readers or your fellow authors to, to, to do, is to be observant and to ask questions. Stan, uh, is that, does that reflect some of your work? Yes, and I think I can speak, especially since we'll be talking um, about space, that um, this notion of exploration, my friend Oliver Morton, a British journalist, has this idea that humans are extremely interested in the place that we can almost get to that we haven't got to yet. So in the 19th century, where we wanted to get to the poles, the North Pole, then the South Pole. 20th century, we got to the top of Everest. It was a fascination but after it's done, humanity moves on to the next thing. So we got to the moon in 1969, and then seven years later, canceled the program, the moon is boring. I want to remind people that that's still true, and that when we get to Mars, it will quickly be regarded as a kind of Antarctica. Interest will move on. So exploration as getting to the place that you couldn't get to, you know, before the new technology came along, that's a very limited idea of what exploration is. After that, if you ratchet it back and you realize that actually Mars isn't that interesting, and when we get there, we'll understand that, um, then the, the same with the moon already happened. Antarctica, there are people at the South Pole right now, no one cares you can begin to reel it back to like your own locale. Uh, this is more Thoreau, a New England guy, 
your neighborhood is worth exploring forever. And the place that people haven't got to yet is a is a false goal in a way. It's not the true source of interest. The true source of, source of interest and of real exploration is is where you live and and what you can see and touch and explore yourself. Mm. Now, how do you um, kind of uh, take this conversation? You're in conversation with hundreds, maybe thousands of other scientists, um, and and how do they and you in conversation imagine this exploration? Um, and and noting uh, Stan's place um the the uh, the desire to get to somewhere we haven't quite gotten to yet does that happen in in your world as well oh yes i was just actually sort of translating what stan was saying as he was talking about this from antarctica or outer space or mars uh to the way scientists have this same tendency to uh say well now we've got solved the human genome let's move on well, nothing could be further from the truth. We have not solved the human genome. And guess what? The human genome is like a Rosetta Stone. We probably will never understand it as, as we would like to. On the other hand, the chase is fantastic. You're, you know, it's like anything else. If you're a child, I know I'm on an island right now that's a mile long. It has no cars. It has no commercial traffic or roads. I know practically every tree on this island because I've been exploring it for the last 68 years. And I have to say that it's um, it's wonderful to keep doing it. Um, of course, it's always changing. And in some ways, that's what science is like. You dig a hole, it fills up with water. You dig another hole, it fills up with water. And pretty soon you realize that you could just keep digging holes all your life. And the real joy is digging the hole. And so we dig holes constantly. I have to say one thing that has been a real revelation to me over my career is the way in which in its best form, science is a truly communal pursuit. Um, I, I like to draw, I, I, I write for my career and I, I'm not good at it <laughs> like Stan is, I like to draw. Um, it's very solitary. It's nice to do on your own. And it's something you really have to do on your own. It's hard to do it in a group, but science is not fun on your own. It's fun to have one moment when you've discovered something really exciting. Like in the last year, we were trying to make mouse models of COVID, for COVID-19 studies so that we could put vaccines in and see if we could block the, the virus. And uh, we weren't getting anywhere. And so I decided, I'm not just going to look at one mouse model. I'm going to look at all the mouse mutts we have at the Jackson Laboratory, and we have 15,000 different kinds. It's as if American Kennel Club had 15,000 different dogs. And they're all sitting there. So I just started randomly looking and by god we found one mouse that could walk away from it another mouse that got cardiovascular problems another mouse that had a little bit of a cough and then sort of recovered it was like looking at the human race and we only looked at eight mice in the end and it was so exciting and the fun part was i was doing it with people in upstate new york in montana um, down at nih the cdc and all of these people would get the email oh my god the castaneous mouse is getting sick. This is so interesting. Or the 129 mouse is not getting sick. And it's that moment when you tell someone about the discovery that really excites a scientist from, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I completely conform to this idea that exploration, first of all, it's more fun when you do it with other people and, and not against other people or in spite of other people. Yeah. And, and number two, 
they're all, you know, all the holes in, in the world to dig are, are not going to change. It's the way you enjoy the actual process. Darren, I, you've got a point to make, but I also want to um, allow you to think about um, all of this reimagining exploration um, uh, in, in the eyes of a college administrator, the college president, and, and how COA kind of um, tests some of these boundaries, tests some of these ideas about um, where we live, how we observe, and what questions we ask. But go ahead and, and make your point and then maybe go to that broader question. No, I think my point was exactly part of that broader question, Ron. Yeah. And- hearing what Stan and Nadia were just talking about was just reverberating so so strongly you know I think in addition to what they both said it's the exploration is not just something practiced by Columbus or Crick or David Livingstone in 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 Africa it needs to be practiced by everyone so it's not just in the realm of experts in some way and I'm reminded, like I'm sitting right across, or I'm looking out the window at um, Bar Island, and every t- time the tide goes out and reveals the bar to Bar Island, I see little kids walking across the sandbar and hitting that island as if there were never anyone there. And unfortunately, I think we, a lot of people, unfortunately, lose the drive to explore when they get older, which is a terrible, terrible thing. So my goal as president is to use that kind of hunger for curiosity and exploration um, and make sure it gets injected in young people that are moving on into adulthood because I just see that process of exploration and reinventing the wheel over and over again or climbing the, the same mountain or digging the same hole as being absolutely fundamental to a better humanity. Um, and unfortunately, I think too many adults kind of jettison that that um, that important part of uh, of of what it means to be human. I think our our drive and our curiosity drive is something that distinguishes us from all other sentient beings. So college should be about really building that exploration muscle. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here at College of the Atlantic. Well, um, Stan or, or Nadia, do you test that out a little bit? Do you think um, adults um, in some cases lose their ability or lose their interest in exploration? How, how would we reinvigorate that? I, mean, I suppose this conference, uh, this institute is, is one way to do that, to bring people in and to get them to puzzle with you um, about some of these big questions. But uh, how do we, how do we, uh, Darren can do it and his colleagues um, as uh, professors can do it um, at a college um, institution to kind of invigorate that desire to explore and to observe. How do we do it with the rest of the population? Um, a little bit uh, like Stan's notion that, oh, we got to the moon. So what ne- what's next? Um, how do we how do we keep people alive, Stan? Well, and this island, it's particularly easy to talk about um exploring because you just have to pay attention so paying attention to your own locale it's a it's a form of buddhist practice what they call child mind um think like a child forget the obligations and responsibilities of adulthood which you know you can't quite forget them but you can set aside space for paying attention to where you are and fool around on this island that will never 
um, end as a process. You could never explore every corner of this island, even if you devoted every day of your life to it. And if you just have a few hours per week, it, you've got an endless treasure box of glorious fun. And that's what I guess I would point to because it's happened for me. I, I, um, uh, I love this island and it's a kind of a sacred space, but it's partly because of that child mind experience that you, if you focus on what's right in front of you that day, um, the child mind never goes away. It just gets layered over by uh, later um, concerns and obligations, but it's always there. And so paying attention and, and, and realizing you can do it and that it's an important and um, joyful part of life. I think that's the key. I'll, I'll just speak up and, and Stan, you mentioned that you started out writing poetry. It seems to me that the, the poets are, are the ones who are always reminding us, be present, observe. And they're doing it often in, in very short bursts that we can uh, grapple with and uh, pay attention to. So uh, Nadia, how do you, how do you imagine um, inspiring people to stay alive and stay alert? Well, everything Stan says obviously resonates with all of us who um, are privileged to enjoy this gorgeous locale. Um, and it's particularly poignant. I was just walking through the rainy rushes uh, to my house this morning thinking that uh, here I am in this arboreal forest, pristine, no noise other than birdsong. And how long are we going to have birds and how long is this beachfront still going to be here if the if the ice caps melt? And 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 I just you know talking about Buddhism, I just did the be here now thing. Uh, you know, if you, this is the only time we have is now. So it's really important to enjoy it, and maybe more poignantly because it may not last. But on a more prosaic level, I spend a lot of time training young people to do science, and what I find is that. Uh, they uh, forget about the child mind to their peril. Uh, it's it, it, an example. Um, one of my trainees came to me and said, here's my, here's the data. Here's my hypothesis. And I said, right. Okay. I'm looking at this gel, which is one way to look at proteins. And I said, what about that little part down there? And he says, uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Um, it doesn't fit the hypothesis. Maybe I should just <laughs> cut it off. And I, so I immediately said to him, um, Michael, don't ignore, explore, because if you if you if you miss out, you'll miss out on what nature is trying to tell you. And the whole trick to science is getting nature to reveal her secrets. But you got to look. Mm. Mm. And I, I guess I would just, um, yes, we're all blessed, all four of us are blessed to live in, in this place, but um, every place um, is special. Every place um, has the power to uh, cause us to ask questions, um, to observe, to imagine. So we don't need to live on an island. It's very helpful to do that um, for those of us who live here, but um, there are so many other um, examples. Um, I'll just remind listeners one more time that they're, to, they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking a kind of a preview of Reimagining Exploration, the College of Atlantic's Summer Institute, uh, speaking with Darren Collins, who's president, Kim Stanley Robinson, a science fiction uh, writer, um, and Nadia Rosenthal, who is the scientific director for the Jackson Laboratory. Oh, Darren, maybe come back to you and get a response from others. What do you want um, 
participants, um, you've alluded to this, both participants and speakers to walk away with. What's the, what's the outcome or the impact that you're hoping um, for this particular institute? Darren? First, and we, we talked a little bit about this in the beginning, uh, I do want us to reckon with uh, what happened in the past. You know, I, I, our first set of speakers will will help us do that. On Monday night, we're welcoming um, Betsy Richards, who is the the new director at the Abbey Museum, to be in discussion with two Indigenous National Geographic explorers, um, one a geneticist and another a photographer, and really kind of examining, you know, okay, what does exploration mean? from an indigenous person's perspective. There, there's, like I said, there's some negative connotation with the word exploration. I don't wanna let go of that. I think we need to look critically at, the, at our past um, and what went wrong. At the same time, um, and, and not box checking that and saying, okay, now we can move on, but having that always uh, a part of us um, at the same time, re-inspiring this, this idea of exploration um, among the masses and, and, and the many and having people walk away understanding it's not just something the elite do or the hyper adrenaline junkies going up uh, new mountains or down, down unexplored rivers, um, but it can be done, like you said, Ron, no matter where you're, no matter where you're at, and um, that, like Stan said earlier, the physical nature of exploration is just kind of one one rubric for 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 what it is. There's also an intellectual and a social exploration that are that are equally uh, challenging and, and and curious. So I want everyone to kind of walk away from the week with a different understanding of the past, but also with a new tool for kind of challenging themselves about re remaking their own lives uh, toward a, a better a better humanity. Um, Stan, you mentioned the the notion that we we uh, uh, go to the moon and then we get bored. Um, the, I think that's that's an important aspect. What what do you see that we're almost getting to? <laughs> what's what's the future that you see that that intrigues you? Um, new knowledge, uh, new um, ideas that uh, we need to kind of test out. And then I'll ask Nadia the same same question. But uh, are we on the verge of some things that you're uh, intellectually intrigued with? Well, maybe um, the let's start with the idea that being bored with the moon is the appropriate response. That the moon. <laughs> The moon is boring. Right, right. It's a dead rock, undifferentiated for the most part. And that leads me to the idea that maybe we will begin to refocus on Earth, that this, this slogan, there is no planet B. I want to add another slogan, a space science is an Earth science. NASA uses this. It's true. Space is interesting and, and useful to humans. But there is no planet B is also true. And so a refocus on Earth and the creation of a good Anthropocene, it's like what Nadia was talking about. You find something, it's not done, that process, if just getting there and identifying it. And humans on this planet is an unsolved problem. We have shot past uh, the number of humans that is appropriate to the planet. 
Uh, well, not appropriate, but uh, has been traditional on the planet. We've suddenly increased our own population by a factor of 10 in the last uh, century. This is radical, and we have to accommodate ourselves to the biosphere that we're in. We are not separate from it. We're in it like jellyfish in the ocean. So that's an exploration worth exploring, and, and it won't end in any of our lifetimes. This will be the project for this century and the next one, and maybe forever. Mm. Nadia, I uh, read a recent piece in um, the New York Times uh, magazine, um, um, and the headline reads something like, medicine may be on the cusp of an era of astonishing innovation, limits of which aren't even clear yet. How's your, what's your take on where we are in terms of, of you know, your, your research, the work of your fellow scientists at the Jackson Lab and, and elsewhere are trying to understand disease and how it affects humans and, and what we might do about it. Um, do we, are you feeling like we're on the verge of something? I hate to burst the bubble, but scientists say that about every decade. <laughs> being one, I, I have a bit of a cynical view in the sense that we've been making pretty amazing progress, at least in terms of our inner space as a biological scientist. We know so much more than we did back in 1953 when DNA was discovered. Um, the I think the the excitement right now, and it's I think it's well justified excitement, is um, the capacity not only to read but perhaps to write our genomic heritage and our future. Of course, that comes with all the usual ethical questions, potential disasters and threats, Andromeda strains, etc. But um, it also comes with promise for some pretty egregious diseases that we might be able to finally to to attack. I think in, in my own mind, uh, the, the, the chance we have now, I think, is to think about health in a different way. Um, most slogans of medical research institutes include something about human health or you know conquering disease, et cetera. And most of those diseases are diseases that people assume are gonna to happen to humans. But as Stan points out, we're not alone, we're jellyfish in the sea. And if the sea is sick, we're not gonna live much longer either. So I would prefer a term that one of my colleagues at the Jackson Laboratory has coined, which is we're not interested in human health, we're interested in global health. Mm. In the sense that whatever we learn about us as perhaps the best studied organism on the planet will help us understand better the ecosystems that we're, we're living in. And that realization will be the real aha moment. Now, how is that going to happen? I think it's actually going to happen in a very nerdy way. We're generating so much data on so many different organisms in such a short time that we are going to need machine learning to really pull it apart. But the speed at which we can do that with the aid of some of these artificial intelligence tools is, is phenomenal. I mean, by orders of magnitude, we are going to be able to see pattern where our own brains could only envision it in a sort of theoretical way. Whereas the data itself is sitting there, it just needs to be harvested and curated. And it's hard to harvest and curate trillions of data bits. Whereas if you can pull it all together, you have the opportunity to see pattern. And of course, pattern is, is where we, we can start to understand how we're connected. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
I'm I'm actually um, at this late stage in my life, extraordinarily interested in data science because I think it's a tool that will really help us um, in many different areas. And of course, it's the key to any kind of exploration, whether it's outer space or inner space. Hmm. Well, Darren, uh, remind us again um, the details of the College of Atlantic Institute um, happening a little later on um, after this ro- radio program has been broadcast. Tell, tell us the details. Yeah. Just um, as a concluding end on Nadia's piece there, we are featuring artificial intelligence um, and we're welcoming Amanda Stent from the Colby Davis Center for Artificial Intelligence as a part of our week as well. So it's it's another avenue for exploration, but the the week is happening uh, uh, beginning Monday, July 31st, and it lasts through Friday evening, uh, August 4th at the College of the Atlantic. Uh, You can join uh, in person out on the the North Lawn, uh, 105 Eden Street here in Bar Harbor, or uh, remotely, you just need to register. And if you Google coa.edu summer institute, you'll find a very quick and easy way to do that. Well, thank you all. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org and tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant from four to five on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests, uh, Darren Collins, who's president of College of the Atlantic, Kim Stanley Robinson, author of The Ministry for the Future, The Mars Trilly, and many others, Nadia Rosenthal is the scientific director at the Jackson Laboratory. Uh, Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and Joel Mann for helping engineer this program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for the Talk of the Towns. And this is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon.